We need to pray together. Let's do that. Father, thank you for that beautiful name, Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for giving him to us. Thank you for your grace to us, your generosity, oh God. Thank you for your patience and kindness. And thank you for your mercy. So now, Lord, we just pray as we have had opportunity now to lift up our praises to you, to thanking you, Lord, for all that you've done for us and thanking you that you have and are meeting with us. We pray now that you would enable us to respond to you through the word of God. I pray, Lord, as you speak to us now, that you would enable us to apply to our own hearts the truth that you want for us today. I pray, oh God, that we would, that you would find hearts that are responsive and receptive here. That as you have met and are meeting with us, I pray, oh God, that the life-shaping word of God through the Holy Spirit might take hold of us and we might respond, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So how safe and secure are you feeling these days? It's difficult, isn't it? There, there's not a lot of help to make us feel secure, feel safe. I'm sure you're getting used to answering safety questions. Maybe you're not getting used to it. So I have a few Christian safety and security questions for you today. Do you believe that God can still look after his mission and his people? Are you still there? Does God need favorable political leadership to advance his church? Do you feel like you need to fight for Christian credibility? Or can we still trust God to do that for us? You know, as we flipped the pages a few weeks ago from 1 Kings to 2 Kings, I'm sure all of us were hoping that, that there might be a new leaf. That somehow um, we might, as we turn the page from 1 Kings to 2 Kings, we might find kings that had hearts that were sold out for God. I'm sure we were very disappointed to find out that, that in fact, as we moved into 2 Kings, we meet a king named Ahaziah who doubles down on his allegiance to lesser gods that are creations of human beings. And so we're, I think, kind of discouraged a little bit to find out that reformation is not in sight and that there seems to be no political solution to advance God's work. So, in light of that, I wonder if many of us were wondering, is God going to wear down? Is, is he going to give in? Is God going to give up? Is he going to give us up? Is he going to give up on us? All those questions sort of surface when you keep reading page after page in the scriptures where lives are not reforming, are not changing. People continue to chase after man-made gods. And we start to see ourselves in here. We certainly see our own time in here. We wonder if we should start re-strategizing for religious success. Maybe, maybe God can't help us. Maybe we need to do something on our own. And then we ask questions like, if, if, if our country openly opposes the gospel and defies the living God, can the gospel survive? Does God need favorable conditions politically to succeed? And, and as all, all those questions continue to, to surface, I think those of us who know the Lord say, of course not. So then why are we 
intending to lean more and more on our own strength. Why, why do we find ourselves placing trust more often on what we have? Why are we wringing our hands in anticipation of the next federal election, hoping that somehow it might go our way? Why am I? Does Calvary Baptist Church rise or fall based on governing authorities or physical circumstances? Do you or I? Did the early church pay or give any attention at all to the Roman political situation? From what we can read in the New Testament, the answer is not really. And yet here we are today, 2,000 years later, God has a church in this world. So I want to encourage you and remind you again of the divine proclamation by Jesus Christ. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not, I think think that's what you said, (laughs) will not prevail. In whatever form they they uh, show or whatever force they have, that promise still is ours to hold on to. So our certainty comes from Jesus' certainty, not from the things that we see around ourselves, not from favorable politics, not from our own strength or resources, but from our commitment and belief that our living God can take care of us, and can continue to advance his mission. So I'll ask the question again, how secure are we? We are very secure. I hope to encourage you today with, with um, something from Second Kings. Um, I'm, I, as I mentioned to the first group, I have a really long introduction today because I need to set it up. So don't get nervous and despair and think, Man, like he hasn't even started his sermon yet and it's lunchtime. It, it's a, it's, I have a long setup because I, want, I, 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 need, to, I need to catch us up um, with an overview of the first two chapters to jump into just a few verses today. But if, you, if we don't have the setup, I don't think we'll really fully understand or embrace what we need to from the, the text because it's built on context. So we're answering a question, how secure is the mission? How secure are God's people that are connected to God's mission? Well, you know, one thing we have noticed, or I hope we've learned over this, this, um, this time so far, is that kings come and go, but the double E, Elijah, Elisha, keep on trucking. They go through kings. We, you know, we, we've watched Elijah go through, you know, Ahab, and, and now uh, Amaziah, uh, Ah. Ahaziah is dead and, and his brother is now, um, you know, coming into power. And Elijah keeps on going. And so um, kings come and go, but God's people keep on trucking. And I know that's 70s lingo. I don't know if you heard any of that before, but I don't even know what it means, but we used to use it a lot. Keep on trucking. And so that's what Elijah and Elisha are doing here. So today when political, physical, or social forces seek to threaten or intimidate God's work, God's spokesman, God's people. God has stuff, okay? That's how we're, we're gonna leap into this today. So here we are at 2 Kings, and you know, you're used to looking here and you see a, a big two and a big word kings, and, and, then, and then, you know, we leap into the text of God's word. And, and really, as we've been learning through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, it, it almost should say, Second Kings of Kings and God. Because God is the subject of all of this, and, and really the, the king's word should be of little kings and a giant God. That's, what the, that's, how, these text, that's how this text unfolds, of kings and God. And, and it asks the question of all of us as we read these, these amazing stories, you know, By whose authority are you going to live? By little kings or by our great God? 
By whose power are you going to, to live? By little kings or by our great God? Of whose security are you going to rely upon? Who, who is going to be your safety? Kings or God? That's how this unfolds. And these questions have to be asked of us. Are we going to be people who rely on God's authority, God's power, God's security, or the things we see around us, or the resources that we have? And so <clears throat> I want to set up today these three major decisions that you must settle that sort of that, that launch us into the third one, um, which we'll spend some time on. But Ahaziah, first, in the first chapter of 2 Kings, Ahaziah has a two-year reign. He's on his deathbed. And he opts to bully the only connection to any hope that he has. And that's the prophet Elijah. And he has this terrible fall through the lattice work and around the palace and he falls and it's a fatal injury. It's kind of pathetic. He's two years reigning, probably in a drunken stupor and falls through a lattice work and <clears throat> fatally he dies. It's, it's rather uh, a, a rather... Um, pitiful thing but the terrible fall of course is a visual that the Omri dynasty is about to come to an end <clears throat> his grandfather <clears throat> excuse me sorry I burned my voice out in the first service <clears throat> um, his, his the, the Omri dynasty his grandfather Omri and then Ahab and then his father and then Ahaziah and now to his brother and, and the dynasty is coming to a close but but the the question of chapter 1, the overview, the overriding question of, of, of chapter 1 is, by whose authority are you going to live? Because God, in verse 3, God tells Elijah, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria. And then in verse 9 and 11, the king orders Elijah to come down. And the pressure mounts from all kinds of unauthorized authority, and they... They press him to go against God's word. So, you know, who are you listening to right now? What are you listening to right now? I know what Elijah was listening to. He was listening to the authority of God. And three times he asked the question, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Beelzebub? Is it because, is it because there's no God in Israel that you are, that you are relying and trusting in, in gods made by man? Who are you listening to right now? Who are you trusting in right now? Where's your security right now? And Elijah won't budge. And we ask the question, well, can God take care of him? Well, he sends down fire twice and removes the company of those who would seek to, to take him. And it's not until in verse 15 that the angel of the Lord says to Elijah, go down with him, that Elijah goes. So by whose authority does Elijah entrust his life to the living God? When God says go up, he goes up. When rulers tell him to come down, he does not come down. When God tells him to come down, he comes down. Now how do we navigate right now ourselves with authority all around us? There are two pillars that we have to remember and live by, frankly, when we're understanding the nature of authority. If anyone forbids what God commands, we cannot listen. Or if anybody commands what God forbids, we cannot listen. We operate within those two guardrails. That's exactly what Elijah did. God had commanded him to go up. And now the king is forbidding him from what God commands. God commands him to go down, and he must do what God commands him to do. And of course, judgment falls. So beware, beware kings and authorities who take on God's institutions. That's sort of an overview of chapter one. The second question is, by whose power are we going to live? And as we launch ourselves into chapter two, we find out that Elijah is doing a victory lap to... Um, visit all of the seminaries that he's founded in some very, very theologically important places. Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, the company of prophets that Elijah has founded. 
And he's taking his new protege, Elisha, with him to introduce him to the company of prophets. And as he is on his way to be translated into heaven by the Lord. And so the question that really is to be asked in chapter 2 is, by whose power will Elisha align his life? So Elijah asks him a question in the ninth verse of chapter 2. Tell me, he says, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? It reminds us of the question that the Lord God asked of Solomon, remember, as he was king. And he says to him, what, what can I grant you, Solomon? And we're, we're all in anticipation, you know. Imagine if God asked you, the living God who owns everything in the universe, and he gives you this question, Chris, I'll pick you out today, Chris, what do you want me to give to you? Can you imagine God asking you that? And we're delighted, and God is delighted with Solomon when Solomon says, give me wisdom to lead this great people. God is pleased with that. And now Elijah asks Elisha, what do you want the Lord to give you? Because after all, Elijah had nothing to give. What, what is the Lord, what would you want the Lord to give you? And Elisha answers this, I just want to double down on the power of God in your life. Give me a double portion of your spirit. Now, for all us Old Testament scholars here, we know that in the passing on of inheritance, the firstborn would get a double inheritance. You can read that in Deuteronomy 21, in fact, Deuteronomy 21, 17. So here's what Elisha is actually doing. He's saying, Father Elijah, let me be your son. Let me be your firstborn. And I don't want properties. I don't want wealth. I don't want riches. I want the Spirit of God. I want a double portion of all that God has empowered you with, all that God, all, in all the ways that God has enabled you to live and please Him and serve Him and accomplish great things for God. God is pleased with Elisha. Elisha demonstrates that he has outstanding qualifications to be the successor to Elijah. In just that alone, while Israel itself is prostituting itself with idolatrous securities, Beelzebub, the prophet of God, is asking for a double portion of the Spirit of God. Give me God. Now, it's important for us to note here that in the theater of operations, these place names are not extraneous details. Nothing in God's word is ever an extraneous detail. All of the details matter. And so when these names are laid out for us in verse um, 2, verse 1, Gilgal, verse 2, Bethel, and then on into Jericho, uh, the, the theater of operations here that Elijah and Elisha are functioning are key theological, have key theological significance for us to understand what God is about. Elijah and Elisha are intentionally directed by the Lord to be the second Moses and second Joshua. And we see that in all kinds of things that are happening here. Uh, Mount Sinai is where the law was given. Moses went to Mount Sinai. Elijah went to Mount Sinai crying out to the Lord. Uh, Eli uh, Moses was mysteriously taken uh, by the Lord. No one ever found his burial place in Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo just happens to be right across uh, the Jordan from Jericho. Right in that same region, Elijah is translated into heaven. Not accidentally that these things are happening geographically in the same way. We have the crossing of the Jordan of, of, these, of these prophets. Prominent is Gilgal and Bethel. Gilgal, for instance, was the first encampment uh, of the Exodus wandering. When the people of God um, were released or rescued from Egypt and wandered around, their first entrance into the promised land, their, their first encampment was Gilgal. And here Elijah establishes a seminary a place of training of the company of prophets. 
It was a place of circumcision in Joshua 5, verse, uh, verses 2 through 9, where there's a, a commitment of, of, of covenant loyalty to God. And now these places have given themselves over to Baal worship. It's, it's distressing and disturbing to see what God's people, when they forget about God, who has rescued them and saved them numerous times, have, have given themselves over to, to the Baals. It was the place of, uh, where the Passover was, was, uh, pr- was uh, practiced in Joshua 5, verse 10. A cessation of manna, verse 12, where now God had moved them into the promised land, a, a land flowing with milk and honey. Gilgal, the appearance of the, uh, of the uh, commander of the army of the Lord to Joshua appeared at Gilgal, the, the living Christ himself. It was a launch point of conquest into the promised land. And all of this is going on as a reminder to the, the people of, the, 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 uh, of Israel reading these, these records, of, of being taught these records, that how far they had strayed from the living God and all that he had done for them. And so the prophets uh, of old were to call people back to covenantal faithfulness to confront false teaching, false believing, false practices. That was their role. That was what Elisha was now being called to. By whose authority? By the authority of the living God. By whose power? By the power of the living God. And that sets us up here for, for the, the um, trans, transition into Elisha and his life. Now, um, you know, the question that we now have is, is the mission going to be secure in the hands of Elisha? You know, whenever there's a change, whenever there's a, a succession, people are always wondering, is, is it going to be okay? You know, and, and we find out the work of God isn't reliant upon human beings and succession. It's dependent upon the living God himself. Jesus said, I will build my church for 2,000 years. Humans have been dying and going to heaven and God has been replacing them, and the church continues to advance. And so here we are now with Elijah and Elisha. God chooses and empowers his leaders for times of social and political threat against his people. This was Elisha's time. This was the time for Elisha now to lead. So now we get to today's text. I told you it was going to be a long introduction. Here's today's text. I want to start with... Um, with verse 13 of chapter 2. He picked up the cloak, this is Elisha, that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. And he's basically asking himself, you know, I asked for a double portion of God. Is it going to happen? And he asked, where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Not depending on himself, not depending on that cloak either. That cloak was just a symbol of his obedience and faith in the living God. And he strikes the, the Jordan River and it divides to the right and to the left and he crossed over. And the company of prophets at Jericho are like, whoa, okay? They're watching. It's, look at they're watching. They're, they're standing there like this, you know? You can just imagine them. Eh? Like, like Elijah was the dude he was like, he was the seminary president. He was a legend. And they're all standing there like, yeah, I don't know about this guy. And he does this and they're like, wow. You can just, you can just sense that, that they, the, the spirit, because they say the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we, your servants, have 50 able men let them go and look for your master. So you know, Pastor Nick talked about this last week. I don't want to redo it. They were, they were assuming that Elijah's body was somewhere. He had gone to heaven. His body was strewn somewhere. They wanted to go find it and bury it. But, it, but they never found his body because Elijah went to heaven. And so here we, here we find ourselves now in Jericho. When they returned to Elijah, who was staying in Jericho, he says to them, didn't I tell you not to go? The men of the city said to Elisha, look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land's unproductive. 
So here's what Elisha says. Bring me a new bowl, he said. Put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. He turned around, looked at them, called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. See, I told you I had to give you a long setup. I mean, if I just launched right into this, bears killing kids, like, be like, what in the world? I didn't come to, what is going on here? So I had to do a bit of a setup here. Because now Elisha is facing the first challenges of his ministry. You know, as he was working with Elijah, he had faced the first obstacles of security and jeopardy for the mission with all the unwholesome political dynasties. God had demonstrated that he can continue to run interference and protect his man, protect his people from evil despots. God's already demonstrated that. Ahaziah now lays dead. But now we come to this obstacle of unwholesome water. It's now a physical challenge to the mission. Jericho. We need to know a little bit about Jericho to understand what's going on here. Jericho was the first beachhead of God's people's rescue, the exodus, and the establishment of the people of God in the promised land. Jericho was the first great miracle that demonstrated that God, after the crossing of the Jordan, the miracle of the Jordan, and then, and then the taking of Jericho. And now Jericho is, is, is like the rest of, of uh, northern tribes. It has, has become uh, uh, disloyal to God, worshiping the idols of the land, the idols of the Philistines, actually. And, and here it is. And, and so the, the company, the prophets are saying, Elisha, listen, and Jericho was, a, was an important commercial uh, trade route. It was, it was the trade route between Transjordan and on into the Mediterranean. And, and those particular important commercial centers were of particular strategic value to God. And, and the, the company of prophets here are implying, look, at the water's horrible, it's unproductive, it's bad, we're likely going to have to abandon this place. And, and God's like, I don't, I don't want this place abandoned. This is an important and strategic place. Uh, why? Because the, the world crosses through here. The commerce crosses through here. This is the place where, where God can introduce himself to the peoples of the world. So Jericho was an important place to hold for God. It was in danger of being abandoned. And so he tells uh, Elijah, you know, tell the people to bring a new bowl and put salt in it and, and, and I'll heal the waters. And, and, and if, for, for the people of God, for the, the people of God of that day, this, this event itself would, would be a reminder of something to them that was really important. As they've been abandoning God, this was a reminder to them of what had happened a few days after they left Egypt. Those of you who remember, uh, Exodus, back in Exodus 15, you can look it up later if you want, but in Exodus 15, the, the people of God started to grumble against Moses. You remember, they came out of Egypt and they couldn't find water. And when they came to water, they came to this spring and it was bitter and they couldn't drink it. And so they just were on Moses' case like crazy. And, and to be on Moses' case is to be on God's case. And they're literally saying, why did you lead us out of Egypt? We at least had drinking water. And here they come to this place, and it's called Mara, because in Hebrew, the word for bitter means Mara. So it's called Mara. Listen, when this is happening, the bitter water and, and, and God being asked to do something, God's prophet, right, the second Elijah, being asked to do something. Here we have them. This is not, this is not incidental or accidental or coincidental. This is planned stuff. Listen, God allows bitter things into our lives 
so that we will come to the end of ourselves and realize that we've tried to come up with our own solutions, we've used our own resources, we've tried to do everything, but we can't, we, we can't solve this problem and we turn back to God over and over and over again. This is what happens with God's people. And so he allows this bitter situation to happen there, this unwholesome water, healing pointing out that healing is possible from God. But there's even a bigger picture going on here. Throughout the scriptures, there are these incidents where water is the surrounding circumstance and God himself brings to life through water things that were dead. You have it in Mara. You have it here. When we get to Ezekiel 47 and the look at the eschaton, the look at the future, messianic age, beyond, you have in, in Ezekiel 47 um, water again and the trees and fresh water, turning the salt water into fresh water that things might live. And then you get to John chapter 7 and you have Jesus who tells people, if any man is thirsty, let him come unto me, and I will give him to drink. And, and from me, from me uh, will flow water, living waters that will bring life to you. And then we get to Revelation at the end when the trees line the, 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 the water that proceeds from the temple of God. And there are these pictures all the time of God's immense ability to take things that are bitter and dead and dying and, and turn them into something alive. And here though, as he did with Moses, with Moses they were to chuck, uh, chuck a tree into the, uh, into the spring. That tree didn't make the water come, uh, turn well. It was God who made the water well. And now he's asking for a bowl, a new bowl, and, and to put salt in it and spread the salt into the spring. It wasn't this bowl of water and salt. It was the obedience of God's people to do what God told them to do to get the results that God promised them. It's always the same for us. You won't get what God has promised you if you're not obeying and doing what God has asked you or called you to do. That's how it works. We are called to serve and obey and, and, and obey God, and then we get the results. Obey God by faith, enjoy the results that you get by faith. And so you have this, this event of the, of the healing of the water. Healing is possible through faith in God. They got involved, the people got involved and, and participated in it, and God rewarded their participation, their faith. We are called to be salt to this world. The same way, the same way that God brought this spring to life through salt, God will bring our world to life through our saltiness in this world as we honor and obey the living God. So the obstacle of unwholesome water, unwholesome physical is taken care of in Jericho. From there, though, it says in verse 23, Elisha moves on to Bethel. Now, what about Bethel? What do we know about Bethel? Bethel literally means house of God. Beth-el, house of God. Jacob named it in Genesis 28 when he wrestled with what we believe, of course, to be a pre-incarnate event with the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity. And Jacob wrestled. And there he names it, surely this is the house of God. And here we have the house of God in total disarray. You know why? Because when we read back in 1 Kings 13, or 1 Kings chapter 12, King Jeroboam established Bethel and Dan as two outlier places of worship so that they would not go to Judah. So the people would, the northern tribes would not go to Judah. And he established gods in Bethel and Dan, two golden calves, and said, these are your gods. Here in the house of God, the house of the living God, the place named for this immense, important theological event is a golden calf. Now there's a seminary there that Elijah has founded with a company of prophets at this very place. And God does 
something very profound here to warn the people of God once again. Let me just pause here for a second. The bricks and mortar of this place are not the house of God. You know that. But emanating from here, when we are here, when people are gathered, is the house of God. Is your body is the house of God. It's where God has chosen to dwell in this era. The messianic era, God has chosen to dwell in our bodies. The living God lives in us. We are the walking house of God. So, you know, and, and churches are collections of the houses of God. You know, and, and the question that we need to be asking ourselves right now is, are the churches that are the houses of God, that have the houses of God, are these places of idolatry or, or, or can you actually find the Lord Jesus Christ there? Is your life, my life, a Bethel? Are we Bethel? Can the Lord be seen in us? Or how, how are we living and so there's a, a couple of dramatic events. We don't have time to, to look at the, the first one, but, but there's a dramatic event in 1 Kings 13 that teaches us something that's very important about the, time that, the times that, that existed. A prophet from Judah came to the northern tribes, came to Bethel, bringing a message from the Lord to King Jeroboam that he needed to change his ways. And he pointed his hand, pointed his finger out at at, at, the, pro, at the prophet from Judah and, and said, seize him. And his, pro, and his hand shriveled up. And he asked for the prophet, oh, please, you know, give me back my hand. And so God graciously gives him back his hand. And, and so Jeroboam says, come, come and eat with me. And he says, no, I can't eat with you. The Lord has forbid me to eat. Uh, I can't stay anywhere in Bethel. I can't eat here. I just got to pass through. I just have to tell you what God has told you to do. Now, here's a prophet that's come from Judah to bring a word from God. And there's an old prophet there in Bethel. And he decides that he needs to test this prophet and see if he's really from God. That's how bad things had become. And so he tests him by saying, you know, an angel of the Lord told me that you can come and, and eat with me. So he does. He eats with them. And then he saddles up his donkey gives it to the man from, the prophet from Judah, sends him out, and he's killed by a lion. The lion stands there beside the body of the prophet. The donkey stands there beside the body of the prophet. The lion does not devour the man. The donkey doesn't run away from the lion. Because they're both serving the living God. And the irony of what's going on in Bethel is a lion and a donkey are serving the word of God and the people of Bethel are not. In fact, the people of Bethel are so confused, they don't even know who's telling the truth, who's not, who's, you know, whether this prophet's telling the truth or that prophet's telling the truth. We live in that moment, folks. We don't know whether this church is telling the truth or that church is telling the truth, what these people claim to be evangelicals are saying, what these people claim to be evangelicals are saying. So he finds out because the prophet is killed that truly he was telling the truth. <laughs> oh, I guess it was a word from God. I mean, that's how dramatic it is. But more importantly, that's how much God cares about his word. He had commanded that prophet not to dine or stay in Bethel. And he went against God's word and ended up staying because the prophet lied to him. Listen. It is critical that God's people must distinguish between what is true and what is false. More than ever, guys, you've got to know the word of God. These days are perilous. You must know what the word of God says. It's crucial. Just because some church says that or some claimed evangelical says that, you have to know the truth yourself, what is true and false. We live in a time that's, that's very dangerous. You have to know the difference between what is right 
and what sounds right but is not right. That's, that's crucial to our moment. For this prophet, it sounded right, but he wasn't sure if it was right. Now, I don't, I don't promote the idea of lying to find out if something is true. That's really weird, okay? But that's what, what took place. But that was, a, that was the first dramatic warning in this section for Bethel, and I, I needed to tell you about that because you need to understand that to understand the bears. Otherwise, you don't understand the bears. By the way, they're she-bears. Just, I just throw that out there. Two female bears. Don't mess with mama bear. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's, what, that's, that's not the story. Okay, here we go. So what happens here? Bethel has already been warned about their disloyalty to God's word. They've already been warned about the fact that, that this golden calf is an abomination to the living God. There's false religion going on in Bethel. Now, now there's, they need another extreme, dramatic portrayal of that. But here's what happens. So Elisha comes into town, into, into Bethel, and there's a 42 cheeky kids jeering him, mocking him, and, and, and they're not young adults. Sounds a little bit like youth ministry. They're not, they're not young adults. They're not teenagers. The Hebrew words here imply small lads and, and really yalad is sort of children. These are children. Now here's the point. They're mocking God's servant. They're calling him old bald head. For all you guys who are follically challenged, God will come to your defense. Now you know what? We're not really sure if, uh, if um, Elisha is bald. Here's why. There's some ambiguity to the wording here because a prophet was recognized by being hairy. That's why they wore the hairy garment. You know, when they asked, remember back in chapter one, what did he look like? Oh, he was a hairy guy all his, with a belt on. Oh yeah, Elijah the Tishbite. John the Baptist, what did he look like? Tell me. Yeah, yes, he was. So these children, what they're literally saying is, they're mocking his office. You don't qualify. You're, you're, just, you're just a hairless man. You, you don't qualify to be a, a prophet, old bald head. Go on up to Mount Carmel where you belong. Get out of here. Can you imagine children? Now listen, here's the point. When children start mocking the things of God... The culture has literally gone to hell. Bethel was so far gone that even the little children were mocking the living God. This could not be allowed to stand. And so, Elisha rightly turns, not for his own, his, his ego was wounded or anything, but because the living God was being mocked by children. And God sends two bears out of the forest to kill 42 children. Now you're going, what in the world? Could they have been warned at least? They were already warned by the lion event. But more than that, Leviticus 26, 22. Leviticus 26, 22. This is the law. This is Israel. This is the, the people of God. Verse 21. If you remain hostile toward me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle, and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. God had already spoken. If you continue to mock my word and my ways, I will judge you. I will judge your children. Wild animals. I will withdraw my restraint. Listen, everybody. 
There's enough animals in our world, in every country, to wipe us all out. The only reason that we are not is because God, in Genesis, you read this, put the fear of man in animals. Because I can tell you right now, bears, grizzly bears in this country, all of that, we're no match for them. God has put the fear of man in animals. If he withdraws that at any moment as he chooses, this is what happens. They had violated the covenant of God. Unless things change, the curses for disobedience will be imposed. But get this, get this, and with this we'll wrap it up. Two bears. Why two bears? This was the second major warning to Bethel. And here's the final warning. If you don't change your ways, I've already wiped out 42 kids in the town. I'm going to wipe out all of you. And I'm going to send the bear of Assyria 100 years from now, 722 BC. I'm going to send the bear of Babylon 586 BC. Now, where, where do, Leviticus, let me finish this with Leviticus. If in spite of these things you do not accept my correction but continue to be hostile, I myself will be hostile toward you and inflict you for the sins uh, seven times over. I will bring the sword upon you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. This was another warning to them of the long-suffering patience of God toward those who would treat his word with, with uh, mockery. So what must we do? Let me just summarize for us. What must we do? All around us, you know, political, physical, social intimidation, all of that around us. No different than at this moment in the time of the kings. Threats. We must, as the church of Jesus Christ, entrust ourselves to the authority of God, to the power of God, and to our security in the Lord alone. No different. Through giving ourselves to the work that Christ has given to us. What is the work that Christ has given to us? And by the way, just, just a warning, and take God's word seriously. Trivializing God's word, the implications are abundantly obvious here. Fire, whales, lions, bears, what do you, you name it. So what's the prophetic action that we should be taking as the church of Jesus Christ living in days somewhat like this? There's so much debate around us about the prophetic word from the church or the prophetic role. Let me just... Let me just clear it up for us as best we can, just as a summary here. We don't bring any new prophetic word to our world. That's settled. That the Christ himself, the, word is, the prophetic word is complete in Christ, and he has spoken through his holy apostles. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, Ephesians 3.5, that's settled. The authority of the church which may in fact extend, of course, to influencing this, the, the political realities around us and physical change. I'm not suggesting that we don't have anything at all. But we don't have authority. We, don't have, have, we haven't been given the authority to take over the political reality of our country. What we have been given authority to do is to loosing and binding in the church. The role that we've been given is who's in and who's out. That's the authority that Christ has given. He's building his church, and we are invited to, to be involved in that authority. It's about the church. We're building the body, not a country. I'm not, I'm not saying that we abandon our country. That's not what I'm saying, because listen carefully. But our fundamental role is to be building the body not our country. Our prophetic role, that's the prophetic word, our prophetic role is the constant 
uncompromising advocacy of the teachings of Christ, as uh, Luz put it in his commentary in Matthew. The constant, uncompromising advocacy of the teachings of Christ. We are called to cooperate with Jesus in building the church, to devote all of our energies to that, to building the church, and as a prophetic role, to model for our world the telling, the calling, the living out in an uncompromising way the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's the call. So let's live what we think Canadians or how we think Canadians should be living. That's our prophetic role. Show them how we are to live. Model the message of Jesus Christ. That's what we are called to do. By the authority of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, under the secure provision of the Son of God, we carry forth our mandate and mission. And no obstacles, political, physical, or social religious can thwart the plan of Jesus Christ to continue to build his church. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for uh, encouraging us today with your word. We can see historically how you have functioned with your people and what you call your people to and what you're able to do, oh God. We know of your might, your strength, your power, your authority. We know that we are secure in you and safe in you, Lord. So may we rely and be encouraged today afresh to not get distracted, to not get off course, but realize you've called us to this grand mission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to tell, to call, to live, to, to unwaveringly, uncompromisingly proclaim the teachings of Jesus Christ. You have spoken. You have prophesied. Our role now is to live out who we are. May we do that with great um, confidence and encouragement, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.